Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a journey through the nuclear age, from the atom bomb to radioactive waste, with environmental journalist Fred Pierce and his book, Fallout. Fred Pierce is an award-winning journalist and author, reporting from 67 countries. He was the environment consultant for New Scientist magazine from 1998 to 2018 and is a regular broadcaster and contributor to The Guardian, The Washington Post and other publications. He has written 14 books on environmental and development issues which have been translated into 24 languages and Fred's latest book which we're going to talk about today is Fallout, A Journey Through the Nuclear Age From the Atom Bomb to Radioactive Waste. Fred, welcome to Little Atoms. Pleasure, great to be here. Describe what the book is. What do you want to do with it? It's a journey through what I think is our nuclear legacy. The way I look at it, the nuclear age is not just beginning, it's coming to a close, kind of more or less through my lifetime. You know, when I was a kid, it was a new thing and electricity was going to be too cheap to meter and they were building power, the first power stations and all that. And I'm, I'm in my early 60s now and suddenly it looks like it's over. Um, yes, Britain is trying to build Tinkley Point C, but as everybody points out, this is crazy because it's so expensive. We have concerns about climate change, and nuclear is undoubtedly a low-carbon source of electricity, but it's just so damn expensive, and we haven't fixed the waste problems. So it's a journey, if you like, through the lifetime of the nuclear age, the military as well as the power station side, looking at the legacy, looking at the waste we've left behind. I got more and more concerned as I was working on it about the legacy of waste, which is going to take decades to centuries to clean up. We're really passing something on to the next generation that they won't thank us for. And also um, the result of the, the really nasty accidents. There haven't been so many, but there have been a few. So I went to Chernobyl. It's a travel journey, actually, is another way of looking at it. It's a sort of dark tourism. So I went to Chernobyl. I went to the exclusion zone around Fukushima. I found and a nuclear accident that nobody's heard about, which happened behind the Urals in Russia in 1957, just within a couple of weeks of our own British Windscale fire. Well, that got headlines, the Russian one didn't. But there is an exclusion zone there where people were simply thrown off the land and have not been allowed to go back. So I was, became the first Western journalist who was allowed to go there. That was fun. 
Um, I've been to various places in the US. Um, Rocky Flats is a place where they used to handle plutonium and turn it into bombs. Uh, they now want to turn that into a wildlife reserve. Well, they have turned it into a wildlife reserve and they want visitors to go and go on there. They want to have cycling trails and you know kids playing in the grass and that kind of thing. And a lot of people there are a bit worried that there's still plutonium in the soil and it might come to the surface. So all those kind of like legacy issues is what I've been looking at. And it was a really interesting journey. I hadn't quite, I mean, it began with um, a commission from actually Granta magazine to go and look at Sellafield in Cumbria, which is Britain's kind of nuclear nasty site, and to go around there and talk to the people around there and what were the pollution issues, what about the cancer cases that people blamed on Sellafield, that kind of thing. So I did that. And I began to realise that this was almost like a forgotten story. I mean, I was, you know, I'm a journalist, long-standing. In the 1980s, I was working for New Scientist magazine. And we used to have stories nearly every week about, you know, the, the toxic nasties, the Greenpeace were trying to shut down the pipeline into the Irish Sea. The Irish government was going crazy about all the radioactivity going down that pipeline. There were cancer clusters that people were worried about. And there were government reports about it. Stories all the time. We don't hear much about Sellafield anymore. Promise you, all the stuff is still there. Well, I was going to say, one of the reasons for that might be, which we'll actually get to later on in the interview, although I guess we can talk about it now, now I've mentioned it, is that most of those places that, that we're familiar with in this country are closed down. So Sellafield is, to all intents and purposes, closed down, although it's still a... Um, I was going to say recommissioning. Um, oh, there's, there's, there's re, uh, reprocessing. There's, there's, quite a, there's a lot of stuff. It's now, it's now under the control of what they call the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, and that tells you the story. It's now about decommissioning and making safe. But it's got decades and decades of work to do handling the waste coming from our existing and recently shut down nuclear power stations. But you're right, it's, a kind of leg- it's now a legacy industry. It's cleaning up the mess industry, and boy, has Sellafield got a lot of mess. But one issue which I think people are going to get more and more concerned about in the next few years is all those nuclear power stations that have been shut in the last five or six years all around our coastline. There are now 11 of them sitting there. They're being mothballed, but they're not going to be dismantled for decades, probably mainly into the next century. So they're going to be sitting there for, you know, your lifetime and my lifetime and our kids' lifetime. They're going to be sitting there on the coastline, these sort of wrecks. And because there's nowhere to put the waste, we're stuck with this stuff. Eventually, it'll go to Sellafield, but that's no solution because they've got to clean up Sellafield eventually. So where are they going to put the stuff? They'll package it up at Sellafield. What will they do with it then? They have this idea for putting a tunnel basically from the back of Sellafield under the Lake District National Park, and they're going to have miles of tunnels, and they're going to bury it all there. Or so they say, I don't think we're going to be very pleased about having our national nuclear waste dump underneath a national park. I don't think that's going to go down well. So you can see how the problems are playing out. We're shutting down the nuclear industry. Yes, we want to build one or two more plants, but basically we're shutting down plants. 11 have been shut. There are a whole bunch more that are going to be shut down in the next decade or so. We're going to be left with two or three at most. All the waste from those, the old fuel, which we haven't worked out what to do with, processing waste, the radioactive bits of reactor and the radioactive concrete and the radioactive steel and all that stuff, it's got to go somewhere, and we don't know where yet. So, as you mentioned, the book is it's also a travelogue of places, sites, yeah. people that have been touched by either you know, bombs or testing or nuclear power stations, and we'll go through some of those. And you begin, as does the nuclear age, of course, in Hiroshima. Yeah. Before we do, 
I just want to talk about the perhaps um, dull subject of measurements, which mm. you, you cover in the um, in the book, because it seems like there's lots of ways in which the nuclear industry is secretive and befuddling, not least in the way that they measure the you know the emissions and and the sort of effects of radiation. They revel in it. They really revel in it. So there are rads and rems and runjans. I can't pronounce some of them. And becquerels and curies and sieverts and millisieverts and microsieverts. And in the book, I tried to boil them. I said, what, what exactly do we need to know here? And there are basically two things you need to know. One of which is the amount of radioactivity, the stuff that's being produced by these these um, isotopes, the radioactive things, so the gamma, the radiation that's coming out of them. And that's, I settle on curies because that's one of the units. There are plenty of others, but let's stick with curies. And then there's the amount of dose. In other words, what is getting into our bodies and what's potentially harming us. And sieverts is, is the one I use for that. But there are a bunch of others. So, yeah, I think, you know, I try to cut through all the, all the crap, basically. Um, you know, the nuclear industry, like a lot of scientists, let's be honest, sort of revel in the complexity of things. So my job, you know, I'm a journalist. My job is to boil this down to try and make sense of it. For me, because I'm not a nuclear physicist, so, you know, I have to keep saying to people, I don't understand that, tell me, explain until I get to understand it, and then to you know pass it on. So the book is about that. It's as well as a travelogue. It's basically a sort of easy to use guide to what the hell happened there. So take us to Hiroshima then. So you you visit. There's a uh, little commemoration going on at the mm. time that you're there, and you meet and you speak to some people. The survivors mm. are called the the Hibakusha. Am yeah. I pronouncing that yeah. right? And I want to talk about you know you meeting with some of those people and what happened to them, but also. I guess those people subsequently became sort of like unwitting guinea pigs, I guess, to sort of mm. see what the long-term effect of radiation on people was going to be. And yeah. would I be wrong to say it's actually quite surprising? Well, they've been followed and they've been followed and they've been followed. And most of them, have, you know, I mean, they're still kicking around, some of them in their 80s and even in their 90s. So it's not as if even the ones who are just a mile or so from the, when the bombs went off. Now, a lot did die. Tens of thousands of people did die for sure. And I'm not minimising that. And they died from blast and they died from fire and they died from just the radiation that just hit them like a wall. And in some cases, you know, there's nothing left of their body. They were basically vaporised. So it was a horrible, you know, nothing worse really has been done anywhere. And the same in Nagasaki. A lot of people died over the following five years or so, radiation sickness of one sort or another. After that, most of the people who got through that went on to live reasonable lives, traumatised in many cases, but went on to live their lives. And some of them, as I say, are still around. So it's an intriguing... I mean, it's still a detective story in a, in a way in progress about exactly what the effects of radiation are. One of the things I discovered researching the book was how little we know for sure about what the real effects are. We know about the, you know, if you get zapped by radiation and it burns you, and it, you know, there are a few cancers that you get very quickly. Um, some of the radioactive iodine acts really fast and gives people thyroid cancers, and if you don't treat that, they die of that. After that, there are the sort of more long-lived, more sort of background radiation levels that kick, stick around and stick around in people's bodies sometimes. But we really know remarkably little about what the effects of that, because, of course, I mean, they may be producing cancers, but they're cancers that we get from other causes, from smoking or, you know, too much drinking or whatever. So it's quite difficult to disinfect virtually impossible to disentangle the radiation effects from the other cancer effects. That makes life very difficult. So we don't know how many people died 
we probably have a reasonable idea now of how many people die from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Um, about 170,000, mostly in the early days. But we really have remarkably little idea how many people died from the Chernobyl accident. Some people say it might have been half a million. That's pretty much the top of the range. But some people say 28. They were the people that were killed during the firefighting and virtually nobody else. That's a real orders of magnitude difference. And we honestly don't know. And well, let's talk about one of the reasons why that huge magnitude of difference is there because there are various sort of competing theories aren't there about the you know the sort of harmfulness of exposure to how much radiation a, a human body can take yeah yes there are there are two theories one of which says that if you like the dose is everything and that it your know, death rate against radiation is is like a straight line on a graph so if you um, you've got half, amount of, half the amount of radiation, your risk of dying of a cancer is half as much and a half again and half again down. So you can just draw a line in the graph and you say, well, you've got this much radiation, your risk of dying of cancer is 1 in 100 or 1 in 10 or 1 in 10,000. But other medical people say, well, look, it won't necessarily be like that because we're all exposed to radiation in the natural environment. There's a background level and, you know, if you live in Cornwall, you get a lot more than the regular background because, you, you know, some of the rocks there chuck out radon and that's a, that can be a concern. So maybe our bodies can cope with a certain amount. Um, maybe there's like a threshold level and you get below the threshold level and basically the body can handle it. It shows no ill effects. And only if you get above the threshold do, do kind of things go a bit pear-shaped and you, your body can't cope with it and some of the radiation effects start to, you know, get, cells get damaged, that kind of thing. There are different groups of scientists that honestly hold those different theories. Now, my reading of it is probably there may well be a threshold. The evidence for higher risks of cancer um, at these low levels are really quite small, very difficult to... And it's not to say it's not there. It's just you can't... It's very, it's very difficult to see it. So another way of looking at it, we'll see, well, there may be a risk, but it's just kind of background noise in our regular day-to-day -day risk of cancer. So perhaps something which we... Even if it's there, we shouldn't worry about. But there are these two ideas, one of which is a threshold and one of which says there isn't. I'm going to follow the way the book's structured and you, you start talking about... The first couple of sections of the book are talking about the legacies of, as obviously we started with Hiroshima, of, of, of nuclear war, of bombs, of the military. Mm. And then you go on to look at nuclear power, which of course is another uh, another legacy of the military in reality. But we'll, yeah. we'll talk about some of the accidents that happened around you know nuclear power stations in a while. But staying with the, the sort of military side and the sort of Cold War, mm. you visit some of the sites in the US, like the first testing sites over in... Nevada. Mm. But I wanted to talk particularly about this place, Hanford, which is basically the place where which they built to process the material for the bombs. Yeah, this was the big, people talk about Los Alamos and other places, but the really big, really secret place that the American military built in the final years of the Second World War to produce the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was the real turning what had the few years before between sort of theoretical physics science into a huge industrial enterprise with tens of thousands of people involved was done at Hanford um, in Washington State, near the west, northwest coast of the US. So they built the reactors there, these nuclear reactors that turned the uranium fuel, you dig the uranium out of the ground, you, you process it a bit and you irradiate it in these reactors. And what comes out the other end contains plutonium and your plutonium becomes the heart of of your, your bombs. And that was done there. The reactors and also the chemical processes by which they uh, refined the plutonium and could put it into a bomb. And then they sent the plutonium off to another place that I went to called Rocky Flats in Colorado, where they basically machined 
this plutonium into like grapefruit size, basically balls of plutonium, which they called pits, which were what were at the heart of the bombs. And then, of course, you know, once we tested a few bombs in the Nevada desert, we realised that, you know, clearly it wasn't sensible. We already knew at that point it wasn't sensible to be, uh, you know, messing on your own doorstep. Mm. So we start testing bombs in the South Pacific, the, the Americans, and obviously uh, the UK, we test in Australia as well as the South Pacific as yeah. well. I want to talk about a couple of points here. First of all, there's um, a fishing boat, the Lucky Dragon, that you mm. tell, the, tell the story of. But then also I want to, I want to bring in... You know, what else happened? What happened to the islanders that were displaced? The Americans, yeah, they decided that they wanted, once they were starting testing the really big bombs, the hydrogen bombs, which were, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the, than the Hiroshima bomb, they wanted to get as far. They didn't want to do it on their own territory. They wanted to do it far off. So they found some Pacific islands, um, which they had control of after the end of the Second World War. Basically, they liberated them from the Japanese. So the Marshall Islands and areas around there in the Pacific and they started throwing people off their islands and saying, I'm going to take this for testing. So Bikini Atoll is the most famous one because we turned it into swimwear because we, we thought that was a rather kind of sexy name for things. So it's funny how atomic power was a really sexy thing back in the 40s and 50s. Anyway, um, people were thrown off. When we finished the testing, America, Uncle Sam didn't really seem to care too much about this. People said, oh, you can go back now. It'll be, it's clean enough. And you know, our Geiger counters aren't reading much. But they weren't checking what was going on in the soil or what would happen if you grew your crops in the soil and ate your crops, all those kind of things, things that kind of make up your radiation doses if you're living somewhere. Um, so people went back and then they discovered that it wasn't really safe and then they did another survey and they went off again. And there's a whole, I mean, the, the, I mean, I kept it down to a chapter in the book, but I could have written a whole book about it, about how people were thrown on and off islands and Greenpeace rescued a few people at one point as part of their um, anti-nuclear activities. Um, and then people sort of landed up in sort of refugee camps and in shanty towns and, and all over the place, really, really messy. And the British were not much better in Australia. Um, some of their ab Aboriginal people were thrown off their land. They describe, they still describe um, to their children being caught in black mists, which were clearly very radioactive fallout clouds from some of the British testing. So the British were never better. The French uh, doing the same thing in the Pacific, and the Russians did some pretty, or the Soviet Union did some pretty awful things, mainly in Kazakhstan, what is now Kazakhstan, the semi-Palatinsk tests, uh, which is the most, com you know, the, the, the biggest concentration of tests done by anybody anywhere was done there, and they really didn't care about the villagers very much at all. Um, who knows what the death toll is? Nobody was counting. The Lucky Dragon, then. Tell us the story. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. The Lucky the lucky Dragon. It was pretty much the first test, and the Japanese fishermen were out fishing um, in the Pacific waters somewhere downwind of, of the Bikini Atoll. They thought it was... I mean, people had been... They were, they were told, don't go in this area of the ocean, but you can go in that area of the ocean. Unfortunately, just before they exploded uh, the nuclear device, the wind changed. But nobody thought, well, hang on, we better back off here. They just exploded it anywhere. I mean, the most extraordinary thing is, is that... It's like the sun rose in the west, is how they described it. It was nighttime, the bomb went off. Sun rose in the west because what had happened, you know, this was a new, this nuclear explosion going on, but they didn't know about that. So they were just sort of looking into the west sky and thinking, how come the sun rose over there and not over there? Um, a couple of hours later, there was sort of white, almost like snow falling on them and on their boat and they started getting sick and then they headed back for harbour and when they got when they got home to Japan most of them landed up in hospital well actually the most of them went home and one of them was sick and went to hospital and Japanese doctors finally figured out what probably had happened 
because they knew that there were tests going on. And they asked the Americans for help. They said, well, could you tell us what, you know, what the health risks are and what the isotopes are so we can, then we can start treating these people? The Americans, I think this is the most shameful bit, the Americans refused to tell them because it was like a state secret. They accused the fishermen of being, of being sort of communist infiltrators as if they'd made up the whole story. I mean, it's the height of the Cold War, but really... So, I mean, actually, most of them did survive, but they were sick for a long time. There were a lot of them, you know, but they, they managed to live out their lives. But it's a pretty despicable episode, and it's one of a large number, but it is one that kind of made headlines at the time. It's one of those odd things the Japanese had tried to forget about nuclear weapons after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because it was kind of, I think it was, my own feeling is that it was tied up in the def- their defeat in the war. So they almost kind of wanted to forget about it. But after the Lucky Dragon episode, there was suddenly there was a revival of concern about nuclear issues in Japan, which has kind of gone on ever since, right through to, to the Fukushima accident. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Fred Pierce. We're talking about his book Fallout. And Fred, I just want to take us back to Kazakhstan. You just mentioned it and this huge area, the Semipalatinsk tests, which were you know the the busiest test site in the world for a period of time. I spoke to a lot of the Kazakhstan researchers, and what they told—I mean, when the Soviet Union broke up. All the Russian scientists who'd been involved in the tests went home, basically. And the Kazakhstan people were, you know, they were just left with this contaminated landscape. 
And it made the Kazakhstan government one of the first governments to sort of declare that it was going to be anti-nuclear, one of the first ex-Soviet governments. And they were very angry. A bit like the Ukraine was very angry after the Chernobyl accident, which had been a few years before. So there was a really strong anti-nuclear movement in some of these former Soviet states. And they wanted to know the truth about exactly what had happened. And, and they knew that doctors had come out of Moscow and they'd come and they'd sort of snooped around and they'd asked questions and they'd done testing and they, they knew a bit about what the radiation hazards were in these villages. But it turned out most of the files were taken home back to Moscow and Moscow said, well, we don't have any files, you know. So they were left in a kind of limbo, not being told what was going on until they began to discover a few things in the archives. Literally years later, in fact, I having been in email correspondence with some of the people in Kazakhstan, they said, well, you know, actually we did find something really very recently referring to heavy fallout on an industrial city downwind of the testing site. And they didn't know how many... Well, they, they said large numbers of people had to go into hospital after fallout from one of these tests, uh, or what they finally realised, that's what would happen. And nobody knows how many died because... The hospital was controlled by the Russians and the data is all gone and it's all very unclear and the Russians aren't talking. But there was clearly a lot of fallout landing on individual villages and that largely got forgotten about. Nobody was counting. But when it landed on an industrial town uh, with you know, half a million people or whatever in it and caused hundreds and hundreds of casualties, that did get noticed. So that's, that's remembered now. So that's just kind of hint of what was going on. It's quite difficult to disentangle because the Kazakh authorities are very, very angry about what happened. And they kind of, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, journalists from the West were taken to Kazakhstan and were taken to a medical lab where they were shown um, mutant fetuses in jars, which the, which the, uh, the Kazakhs had kept from their, uh, I mean, they're gruesome. But the trouble is nobody really knows whether that was anything to do with radiation or not. So a lot of stories told, and to be honest, I don't believe all of them. I think there's quite a lot of propaganda came out of the Kazakh side as well as the other side. But I am sure, because I've seen some of the documentation and had it, it was in Russian, but I've had it translated for me, and I am sure that there were a number of accidents where there's documentary evidence collected by the Russians rather than anybody else showing really quite severe impacts from fallout. Now, obviously, when we're talking about military nuclear weapons, it's inevitable that there's going to be lots of secrecy. And ironically, that carries over into the civilian industry as well. Once mm. once we start to get civil power stations, it seems like people are not sharing information when something goes wrong and you know, lots of hidden stuff going on. And um, I want to talk about Fukushima. You go and visit mm. the um, the exclusion zone of Fukushima and talk to people there. Well, tell me what that was like, first of all, visiting the, the exclusion zone. But then I, I sort of want to talk about the effects of... Because we've talked about, you know, the various different opinions on the actual effects of radiation on people. And that really comes into play here in terms of the, you know, the aftermath of, of this accident. Yeah. A bit like Chernobyl, they created an exclusion zone around... Basically, people were evacuated 
I mean, there was a huge amount of secrecy at the time. People were not told what the radiation levels were or, or why they should be evacuated. So some people just fled even if they weren't evacuated. There was a huge chaos around at the time. Um, and then some old people were left in their homes and they weren't removed at all. And, you know, one or two people died of starvation lying in their homes wondering what the hell had gone wrong. And the carer didn't show up for days at a time. So there's a lot of chaos that went on. But, but essentially a lot of evacuation went on. And there is this exclusion zone now. It's kind of about 30, 30 kilometres. A radius around the power plant. Uh, of course, there are a lot of engineers working at the power plant, but people are not allowed to live in that zone. So there are these ghost towns, and I visited them and drove through the mountains along these deserted roads, um, past all the sort of uh, overgrown rice fields and that kind of thing, and forests which are still quite heavily contaminated. Some, a lot of the radiation is gone, but forests are heavily contaminated. And these weird pyramids of big plastic, black plastic sacks where the Japanese authorities have been trying to clear up the mess. So they've been scraping the soil, they've been removing vegetation in certain areas to try and clear up the worst of the, of the, of the radioactive material from the fallout. They're trying to clean the place up um, so that people can go back. But what they're finding is that even when they declare places safe, and I went to one place which is about to be declared safe, I checked a couple of years later, virtually nobody's gone back. People don't want to go back, partly because they've they were evacuated, they got a bit of compensation, they've got new lives elsewhere. And partly just they're absolutely scared of the radiation. And of course, nobody believes the authorities when they say it's safe. Because, well, they believed the authorities before when they said the power plant was safe and it wasn't. And when the power plant blew up, nobody told them what the heck was going on. The Japanese have gone from being broadly accepting of nuclear power, if I put it that way. You know, they had 50 nuclear power stations, they used an awful lot of nuclear power, from being totally cynical, totally sceptical about anything that they're told by the authorities. And that's a problem for doctors who are working in that area who tried to say, well, look, I know it was bad and we were treated as bad as anybody else. No, nobody told us what was going on in the university when the fallout came. But, you know, we're doing the measurements. We've got our Geiger counters out. We think it's probably safe for you to go back now. People won't believe them. They're regarded as, uh, well, you, you know, we have a problem with experts everywhere in the world now in the US or in Britain. Nobody, nobody trusts the experts. Well, if you're talking about nuclear things, nobody trusts experts even more. And if you're talking about nuclear experts in Japan, well, you know, forget it. And the irony is that more people might have been injured or have, have long-term health effects from the stress, you know, the dislocation, mental health problems resulting from that yeah. evacuation itself rather than the actual radiation. Yeah, nobody, nobody can prove it, and it's, mm -hmm. it's not certain, but it is quite possible that nobody, nobody died from the radiation from uh, the Fukushima accident. Most of the radiation was, unlike the Chernobyl accident, which is much, much worse, most of the radiation was stayed inside those reactors. Some was released, but what was released mostly went out to sea. And by the time the wind turned and it came back to the land, most people had been evacuated. So it's very different from a Chernobyl where none of these, those things were true. So the actual radiation levels that people got were relatively low. Now, if they'd stayed, it would have been a lot higher, but, you know, things kind of worked out. Very possible that nobody died of radiation. But lots of deaths, people literally killed being, you know, old people being taken out of their homes and bundled into vans and taken away in a great rush by nurses and people who were scared themselves. Some of those had accidents. 
Uh, their survival rate, certainly, of, of old people who, who were moving out is much less than other old people in neighbouring old people's homes. So clearly their health deteriorated from the trauma of being moved out. Uh, there have been dozens of suicides, which um, doctors say are directly related to, the, again, the trauma. So most doctors in that area that I spoke to, all of them that I spoke to, say, look, um, we're pretty certain that more are dying, more have died from the trauma, the evacuation, and the kind of things that have followed from that um, than, than will ever die from the radiation from the accident itself. And that's something which people say about Chernobyl as well. I say it was in radiological terms, Chernobyl was a lot worse. But even there, people say, well, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, probably no, nobody's saying that people shouldn't have been evacuated. They had to be. But the long-term effects of the evacuation have been worse than the long-term effects of the radiation. I want to finish off just talking about cleaning up the mess afterwards. We've talked about how a number of the power stations in the UK are starting to be decommissioned. I want to talk about how you decommission a power station in a moment. But but first of all, now I'm very keen on Suffolk. It's one of my favourite places. Mm. And I somehow managed to miss that a few years ago, during the, the beginning of the process to decommission Sizewell, that there was nearly an accident. What happened? Yeah, Sizewell A, that was really, really scary in retrospect. They were shutting it down, so they were switching everything off. But the, the fuel, that had, you know, the last fuel that had been in the reactor was still on site and was sitting in cooling ponds, like swimming pool basically, uh, skips full of this fuel. You have to put it in water because it's still, well, it's A, very radioactive, but B, it produces a lot of heat, so it's evaporating the water. So you have a cooling system operating through this swimming pool, the water coming in, and that's got to, got to keep going, you know, full time. During the decommissioning process, when they were shutting everything down and switching everything off, a lot of sort of chaos going on and new alarms were going off and, you know, everybody was saying, oh, God, we, you know, can we do... You know? They were a bit overwhelmed by this, the people handling the plant. So nobody noticed when the alarm that said the water cooling pipe has broken, it's leaking water, the water isn't going into the swimming pool. Nobody noticed for several hours the water level was going down the fuel elements were being exposed, they were overheating. They could have had their own sort of mini meltdown there, which would have produced a lot of radiation. I probably wouldn't have exploded, but it would have been a really nasty accident and it would have got outside the power plant and, you know, headed off on the winds and probably down into the, into the sea as well, down the drainage pipes. They discovered it pretty much just in time because somebody went to do their laundry. The laundry on the plant turned out to be the building, the room was right next to the swimming pool. And they went into the laundry and they put their stuff in the, in the machine and they sort of looked around and there was water on the floor. Well, I didn't put it there. You know, it's not the washing machine leaking. Where's the water coming from? The water was coming from under the door, I think, or certainly from the neighbouring room. And they said, oh, we have a problem here. If that hadn't happened, that entirely fortuitous thing, it would have been several hours later before the regular round would have spotted that there was something wrong and something much worse might have happened. And it was kind of covered up by their health and safety people. They went in and they did a report and the original people who wrote the report said, this could have been really nasty. We, you know, public should be alerted about this. And then the higher up said, no, nah, it wasn't really that bad. Uh, yours is only an interim report. We're going to produce a final report to say it really wasn't too bad. But they never did. I discovered that was how things were left publicly. So I went around and said, well, where was this final report? Where, how did you finally resolve the, the seriousness of this act? 
Um, health and safety people couldn't find it. And I, uh, you know, I kept going back and saying, have you found it yet? Have you found it yet? We did this over several months. They never produced another report. They never produced a final report. So the only report there was on that accident was the one for the accident was from the original inspectors who said this was a really scary event. So that's my conclusion. It was a really scary event. We were okay, luckily, but it could have been a lot worse. And it was pure chance that it wasn't. To decommission a power station, again, there seems to be numerous opinions around the world. Different countries have different methods or are going to adopt different methods of decommissioning their power stations, aren't they? Well, there are, kind of, there are different ways of thinking about it. Most countries say what we, we should be cleaning up the mess quickly. We don't want to leave this for future generations. Let's clean it up. Let's take the nasty stuff out. Let's dismantle it. Let's make the waste safe. Let's find out. We haven't got a final burial ground for it because no country does yet, but we can make it safe. We can put it in vaults and, you know, look after it. There's the other extreme, which has been done a couple of times in the US. We basically say we're going to leave it all there forever. We're going to sort of cover it in concrete and walk away. And there'll be so much concrete that it'll be safe. We'll see. The middle way is what Britain is doing, which is saying a lot of that radioactivity will decay away a bit if we leave it for a while. And since we don't have anything to do with all the nowhere to put all the radioactive concrete and the radioactive steel and the bits and pieces and all the you know the thing containers and all that kind of stuff that's you know it's quite heavily radioactive. We don't have any, anything to do with it now. So why don't we just leave it there for a few decades and say by the end of the century or early next century some of it will decay away, so it'll be easier to deal with, and we might have somewhere to put it. And that's what we do. It's called care and maintenance. So we have eleven so far of these power stations that have been shut down and there are more to come, which are generally on very scenic bits of coastline because far away from anybody because that's where we wanted to put the power plants in case they blew up. Luckily, none of them have. So they're they're in rather nice places that it would be quite nice to have back this pristine landscape. But no, they're going to be there for a long, long time holding their radioactivity. I I said, well, you know, are there going to be scientists looking after this? What's What's going to happen to all these sites? And they said, well, no, we might have a sort of... Um, somebody back at HQ will keep a vague eye and we'll have various electronic monitors. Um, but no, actually, we're just going to have one security guard. So not only will they be sitting there on the headlands with all that radioactivity shut inside them. I mean, probably they are safe. I don't know. But they will have one sort of job sort of security guy with a, with a you know, CCTV camera. Hopefully he's there every day. Um, and that will be the security on it. It's a bit weird, I think. We've been talking about the nuclear age and that's, you know, we what, 70 years into that, roughly? Mm. And you've just mentioned a couple of times that, you know, no countries have any long term plans for what they're going to do Mm. with all this nuclear waste, where it's going to be stored. Why not? Well, they have plans, but nobody's actually been able to sort of make them happen. The Finns have have got us vault somewhere down in their rock somewhere that they're working on. The Swedes are sort of working on something similar. They're not finished yet, but maybe they will be. Uh, But nobody else has. So the Americans have talked for a long time. They want to put it all. The federal government wants to put it all in Yucca Mountain in Nevada, which is part of the old testing grounds. Uh, Probably rather safe, sensible place to put it, actually. And they they dug some tunnels, but they stopped halfway and they haven't carried on because all the senators in Nevada wanted nothing to do with it. And they they basically managed to stop it. And similarly, in Britain, various different sites have been talked about as potential places. But unsurprisingly, the locals don't want it. So, you know, they're stuck with a sort of not-in-my-backyard problem because really nobody wants to be the final resting place for the nation's nuclear waste. Uh, Whether you're in Germany or France or Japan or China or anywhere else, the same kind of thing follows. Trouble is, if it's by saying it's not in my backyard, it means it's in everybody's backyard. 
Yeah, where actually, is this stuff currently? Because clearly it exists. It already exists. Well, uh, in Britain, it's um, several of the power stations, some of the operating ones as well as the decommissioned or the ones that are going to be decommissioned, have special sort of secure interim stores, as they call it, where spent fuel is being kept. A lot of being stu- stuff is being kept at um, Sellafield. The world's largest stockpile of plutonium, which is about as nasty as it gets, and could be turned into bombs or, you know, terrorists could have a go at it or whatever, is in a warehouse at Sellafield. Um, so a lot of most, the, by default, the stuff usually, when they remove it from the power station, it usually ends up at Sellafield. But Sellafield is just a sort of holding station. That's why they've been talking about maybe building um, a repository, as they call it, in the rocks out the back of Sellafield, which is essentially in the Lake District National Park. But nobody wants it there. So we have the same problem all over the world. Nobody wants this stuff. And while, in radiological terms, maybe while it's still generating a lot of heat, maybe you know you want to keep an eye on it a bit. You probably don't want to bury it where you can't reach it. But we do need somewhere to put this stuff. We do need somewhere where you can say future generations don't have to worry about this. They don't have to spend, you know, billions of pounds, which is what it would be, to keep this stuff safe and hope that, you know, some new generation of terrorists don't find a way of blowing it up or that a new generation of governments don't say, you know, that plutonium you've got stuff to win, that would be really useful to make some more atomic bombs. You know, if you're serious about putting an end to the risks of nuclear technology and the waste from nuclear technology, we've got to find a way of getting rid of this stuff. So I'm not in favour of having it underneath the Lake District National Park. But I do think that we've got to be serious and grown up about finding somewhere to put it. But I don't see much sign yet, to be honest. So I've been talking to Fred Pierce. We've been talking about his book Fallout, A Journey Through the Nuclear Age. From the Atom Bomb to Radioactive Waste, which is out now from Portobello Books. Fred, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Pleasure, I enjoyed it. Thanks. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.